Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Things I Haven't Even Told My Therapist. I know it's been a while, so let me catch you up. Through the first eight episodes of this show, I felt a tremendous amount of growth and excitement in the process. Making this show was as therapeutic for me as I hope it is for you. But I found it can be harder than I expected to take trips down some of these memory lanes, and a little break was definitely needed on my end, which honestly kind of happened by accident. After a certain point, I realized that out of complacency and, quote, doing better than I had been, that break spurred excitement, which became pride, which became avoidance, which allowed me to slide a little bit from the progress I had made. As my high school coach, Mike Langle, would remind us, the top is just the place where you turn around, which means that instead of celebrating the peak, understand you've gone through only half the battle. Thus, I needed to return to the pathway of growth I had minutely strayed from. With all that said, I am sorry for the radio silence, but I'm back and excited to bring some new narratives to the table. Today I'll be sharing an interview with a fellow Lakeside Lion, David Puzo, class of 2020. He'll be the first to admit it, but despite some similar social circles, we talked maybe once or twice before he reached out with his own story to tell. Funny enough, he started his college experience just an hour north of me at Colby. As a couple notes app screenshot sent via Instagram DMs developed into a friendship, I learned so much about myself through David's extremely profound understanding of both himself and his story. His curiosity piqued an extremely interesting journey to self-assessment and self-acceptance, and I'm so excited to finally share his outlook and experience with you all. Don't forget to stick around after the interview for a couple more personal reflections on it. I hope you enjoy. David, it's nice to talk to you again. Welcome to the studio, I guess, over FaceTime. Thanks for being able to meet with me tonight. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me back. For for those who haven't heard it already, do you mind just sharing your story? Yeah, in terms of mental health, my story definitely started later. Like, I, I would say I was almost entirely, like, mentally healthy until about my later years in high school. And really started, I'd say, like, second half of my junior year, I just kind of felt this sense of confusion and numbness and all mixed together with a distinct feeling of being uncomfortable, emotionally uncomfortable. And I started feeling that second part of my junior year, but then it just got worse over time. And then eventually in college, kind of reached a boiling point and it reached a point where I went to the psychiatrist and first she was telling me I had ADHD and I went back a couple months later and I was like, I don't know if I have ADHD. And she was giving me medication, which was also in itself kind of questionable. So she had me fill out this sheet to re-diagnose me as something. And so I filled it out and she says, asked me a few questions. And she says, well, I think you're bipolar. And that was kind of a shock. So I called my mom and then my mom just, sent me home and she said we're gonna get you a real psychiatrist that's that, that's what she said about because I was going to the college psychiatrist at the time and this was at Colby College I just want to reiterate like nothing against that psychiatrist personally she's a great woman but just the way that she did things I don't think was really helpful for me I was being offered a uh, like lithium on the spot like I don't know if I should be taking that my last medication didn't really do anything positive so I ended up going home back to Seattle and I basically took a gap semester and this was just last year so last spring I spent all home and I was meeting with the psychiatrist and luckily it turns out I didn't have bipolar and what my psychiatrist said is if I do have ADHD it was you know to a point that's kind of irrelevant so what we realized what we determined is that I had like emotional issues like issues processing my emotions understanding my emotions and yeah I've kind of been going through that journey ever since and I met with a psychiatrist probably three times a week during that period of time last spring three times a week for about five months and came out the other side like a much healthier person and mental health is like an ongoing process so I wasn't just cured <laughs> after after five months of meeting with him but things were a lot better, and I'm definitely at a point where my mental health is very stable and very manageable, and that's where I am today. 
Awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Just from that point, just because it's something I talk about so much on the show is the role of family. And you talk about how your mom made that call for you to bring you home, to find you that psychiatrist. What sort of role did your family play for you throughout the process of you finding and getting the help that you needed? You know, they actually played a huge role. Like, you can't really, how much can you hide from your family? You know, they, especially your parents, they know you like, a lot of them will know you like the back of their hand. When there's something a little off, they're going to notice, they're going to say something. And for my family, or in my story, it, it actually started with my sister. I was on the phone with my sister, and she just gave me a call to check in on me, or maybe we were talking about planning something or other. It was kind of irrelevant, though, looking back. What was more important was that she called me and said, hey, how are you doing? And I just gave the answer, like, ah, I'm fine, when really, really I was not fine. This was my, like, a couple months into Colby, and things were not okay. Things weren't dire, but... Things were bad enough where I was on the phone with her and I just started crying. And then I said, no, actually, I need help. And she was really, really nice. She helped me a lot and then told me to call my mom. And then, yeah, and then my mom was like, you should go see the psychiatrist. My mom's a nurse, so she's she's really good with any kind of medical issues. So she was really calm and level-headed and knew what to do. So my family has definitely played a huge role and they've been... Like I said, my mom's a nurse and my dad's a very logical person. So their conclusion was, okay, let's get him therapy. And I mean, they were right. And it helped a lot. Family's played a huge role for me. Yeah, it definitely. It definitely helps when your family is really helping push you forward as opposed to holding you back like so many people uh, right. I, I've dealt with. And personally, it sometimes feels that way. What was it like finding your therapist? Because you mentioned yourself that it was tough to find that right person. You, in fact, had to be brought home from school to find that person. Everybody I talked to, they, they all have this sort of like wonder moment when they finally meet that quote-unquote person. What right. was that like for you? Right. I think there's kind of two schools of thought in psychiatry. And I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a therapist, so I don't know. But there are two schools of thought that I personally experienced. So psychiatrist at my college, her school of thought was she pulls out the book, she has you fill out a list of questions. She flips through the book and she says, okay, your answers look most similar to this one. And I have these medication options for that. And you can go see the school therapist. And that, That's like that was MD. my initial options. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure she's a nurse practitioner. So I'm sure it was more precise than that. But that is what I saw. And for something that is so complex like mental health, I don't know if how helpful that is for anyone, really. <laughs> There's the other school of thought. So I connected with my first psychiatrist when I got home very, very well, the one that was not from my college. And he sat me down. He said, this is going to be a long process and kind of gave me this speech about, like, what do I want to get out of it? What do I want out of my life? And he gave me this great speech about what psychiatry is to him. And he basically said that, going to be a long process and a lot of work and a lot of uncomfortableness and yeah I mean three times a week that's that's a considerable amount yeah uh, and it was something that so we were meeting one hour three times a week and honestly I loved it I ended up getting to the point where I was looking forward to going to our meetings and at first it was actually I think I always looked forward to it just having someone to hear about my problems and Mm -hmm do like a mental investigation of how my brain works. It sounded amazing to me. And so my mom, because she's in the medical area, she knew a psychiatrist and he said, well, I can't help your son because of conflict of interest. He said that, okay, I made a list of psychiatrists and I made sure they're younger. So they'll get along with your son more. And he pointed out which ones he thought had a personality more similar to mine. My psychiatrist was someone who I got along with really well and, I felt like understood me quite well, just naturally. So I had a very smooth process once I started looking outside of the college options. Yeah, and moving on from that, moving on from the ideals of therapy and things that we've really touched on here before, but both talking to you off before now and off mic, it's very apparent that things really went from bad to worse when you made that jump to college. And I know for me, making the jump from high school to college in some ways alleviated some measures of stress and anxiety and depression in my life and 
other things got a lot, a lot worse, like with regard to drinking. And I think we have a sort of shared experience in having left Seattle, a very seasonal affective disorder city, and making our way to the great state of Maine. And I was wondering what that jump was like for you and how it really took the things that you were struggling with from something that you were living with to something you had to face. Yeah, moving to the great state of Maine. So that's when I started college. And I think once you're away from home and once you're at college, that's kind of when a lot of your issues can boil over because you're responsible for not everything, but I mean, you're responsible for your health. If there's someone bad, and I put that in quotation marks, someone bad, whatever that means, that you're around or whatever, and then your family can't be like, hey, isn't that person kind of bad? Because they're not there. And I'm, and I didn't, I don't really communicate with my family about those kinds of things in the first place. So I ended up in a pretty toxic relationship. And I honestly love that girl. And we learned a lot from each other. And she's kind of the reason that I'm mentally healthy comparatively nowadays. I have a lot of love for her. But we were definitely two people who did not get along very well. And she definitely like brought me to a point where I was considering what am I doing in my relationship people and that led me to thinking about what am I doing with my life what do I want to do and I realized that there were some really big questions about myself that I had not answered and that I wanted answered and certain skills that I did not have I was so dependent it just shows that I was so dependent on my family mm-hmm. a lot more than I wanted to admit and that was part of my struggle is I had to go back to them and be like, you know, I'm not adult enough to be an adult. So I need, I need help from you guys again. Yeah. At least in my experience, these schools out here, aren't, they aren't the best locations to be struggling with mental health because everybody keeps it on the inside. And I know this is something we've talked about a ton. Yeah. Earlier today, I was just watching a YouTube video called like the problem with elite colleges. And I'd say that you and I both attended on the East Coast. Like a lot of people know these colleges. They're your typical lakeside colleges. You know, they're elite colleges, whatever that means. There's definitely some mental health issues, some collective mental health issues that these institutions, at least in my experience, you know, I don't want to talk about anyone personally, but in my personal life at these colleges, all of my friends seem to have something. And there is very competitive nature. People seem to come to these colleges like they have something to prove to other people. And I think that leads to a culture. They have something to prove to themselves. They have something to prove to their parents about how smart they are, how accomplished in life they are, how grown up they are, how they can do so many different things so well. And I think it creates a culture of when you do fail, when you are feeling uncomfortable, when things aren't going your way, there's not really this culture of speaking up about it. And having like that open discourse and being okay with, I mean, I heard people talk about it, but there's not, there's definitely this sense of negativity around failing, which is not Mm -hmm. necessarily a good thing because how are you going to learn if you're not okay with failing, you know? And I'd say that there's on top of that, some substance use issues at these colleges as well. The amount of drinking that I experienced around me will probably be more in those four or five months I was at Colby than the rest of my life combined. I'm not like a drinker, so that's that's not saying that much. But It's kind of terrifying. Yeah, I think the substance cultures of these schools out here are, unlike anything I've seen or experienced, really just being conscious of the situation you're in and the location you're in and how you're going to have to live with certain realities and be conscious of certain realities that not a lot of people around you are facing or at least openly discussing, is can be really discouraging. I mean, I, I think we've talked enough about the reasons things got bad for you. So I, I want to make a couple-month jump forward in your life. Where did you really start to find that healing? I'd say I found that clarity through my curiosity, and also I started to find some clarity or seek out that clarity because I felt so terrible. I do not want to feel like this for the rest of my life. I don't want to interact with people like this. It has such a negative impact on people's lives because of how my brain is working. So, just, you know, out of curiosity, almost in 
fear of being like this forever. I did everything I'd say. Like I did philosophical investigations. Like, I read a bunch of philosophy. I'd say starting like my senior year of high school, I got really into philosophy. There's this spot in the mountains I would drive to. So every time I had conflict with my family or it felt like I didn't want to be around them, then I'd just drive to this spot that I had in the mountains in the Cascades and just literally sit by this river and just think or like bring my guitar and play guitar or bring a book and just sit by this river and finding some kind of space where you can let your own thoughts flow because I think that our society normalizes a lot of things and it's good to just get a different perspective and I've found that different perspective by being alone. I'd say that was most of it literally finding time to be alone and have my own thoughts and journaling and then I'd say also through my psychiatry, I found out a lot about myself. But I'd say most of the work for my psychiatry was done out of psychiatry. And really, I'd say it was, obviously it was a complex process, but overall it was pretty simple. Just finding time to be alone and doing my own philosophical and even kind of medical research, Mm -hmm. researching what is going on in my brain, like how does the brain work and stuff like that. On top of that, obviously a great a great deal of healing it comes from introspection, which is, is something I love to talk about, something I've had to do a lot of work on myself to really focus on, and it can be really tough and really scary at the same time. What strategies and tools did you learn and do you continue to employ? I know you still love to spend time outdoors, and that's kind of a guiding feature in, in your coping and with regard to finding clarity, finding peace. What other tools did you take away from therapy and, and just self-realization and the whole process that you went through? Yeah, I'd say the number one thing that was important for me was finding a space I could be genuine in. So making sure that when I'm writing in my journal, like, is this really how I'm feeling? Or finding people who I can be genuine with. Because I think your brain likes to do gymnastics, to not take mm-hmm. responsibility for a lot of things or you a lot of things or not be honest with itself about who you are as a person and your own failures and all of that so I think things like journaling Mm -hmm. things like philosophy and things like talking to people who get you talking Mm -hmm. to people who genuinely care for you and talking to people who have an understanding empathetic edge to them I think there's nothing more powerful than that and on top of that figuring out what you like to do as a person I think that's really important to figuring out things about yourself. What about it do you like and relating that to who you are? Yeah, authenticity is totally key. I think it's really interesting you say that because I hadn't even put that much of a conscious thought to that and sort of thinking about who I gravitate towards, particularly when times get harder. And when my drinking started getting really bad, it, it was when... I was sort of in denial of my depression, my anxiety, and I was trying to avoid it. In that time, I think the term you used, mental gymnastics, is on the dot. Like, I was just sold into that lifestyle of, yeah, all right, like, I'll, I'll drink on whatever night of the week it is. We're online school. It doesn't matter. <laughs> because when you're doing things, you naturally find people who like to do the same thing. So you end up in this situation where everything you're doing is being enabled. Exactly, and it just becomes a snowballing effect. But I think it's part of a bigger problem where once you start bringing substances into the mix, they make all emotions so much messier. And there's no way to really deal with that other than just be conscious of it, and I don't think a lot of kids really want to be conscious of that. Because that means you have to admit that you're terrible at something. (laughs) Literally, that's what that means. when When you admit you mental health issues for in a lot of cases it means admitting that you're bad at something i don't think that managing your emotions being bad at that at the age of 19 is a embarrassing thing or even in your 30s 40s 50s 60s till the day you die because it's, life is hard life is complex we have a certain level of capabilities mm-hmm. to manage multiple things at once and if you're worried about academics and you're worried about your relationships and you're worried about your fitness and you're worried about the things you're doing in your free time and you're worried about what you're eating and I mean there's so many things to worry about mm-hmm. you know 
Right. Especially with the state of the just state of the world over the last two years, there's just always something to be concerned about. How did you learn to avoid those unproductive outlets? I know you sort of like found your passions and followed them, but sometimes it's easier to take the easy way out. Like it's easier for me to buy a 30 rack from the corner store and kill it with a buddy of mine than it is to hop in the car and go find a mountain and go on a beautiful hike. As far as in the short run, doing a personal cost benefit of time in particular and just effort and physical output and the fact that the hike is something I'm much more likely to be doing alone. Uh, it, it's in the moment, not being fully conscious and self-aware. It can be really tough to focus on driving yourself and pulling yourself towards those more productive outlets for your emotions because they're not always the easier option. I think I have a, a pretty philosophical answer to that. I think that the reason why we so often choose that quote-unquote easy route because it's not actually the easy route the the short-term reward route i think partially due to you know the nature of our brains you know we like dopamine something like drinking or smoking weed will release a lot of dopamine and that feels good and it helps numb your emotions but also i think at least for me the reason why i did turn to substances was partially due to the fear of feeling never going away. Hmm. You know, I was kind of in that headspace where I was like, well, if this is how I'm going to feel for the rest of my life, what can I do about it? Right. Let's keep doing what I'm doing and get the little pleasures that I can. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think that's not how emotions work. And I think it was that substances and, you know, part, part of your own brain functioning and how you're processing your emotions. So if you think of your emotions as a sine wave and, can't really control your emotions as much as people like to talk about that i mean your emotions are survival reactions being fired off by your brain it's not something there's some level of control there's some level of you know understanding but how much you can really control is the answer is you can't really in the long run Mm -hmm. and i think that your spells of negative emotions and positive emotions are like a sine wave right and the issues really start to come up when you interfere with that sine wave So when you're on the bottom and you want to just shoot yourself back up to the top of the sine wave and you just, you kind of skip a level and that confuses your brain because instead of processing emotions, say you're feeling, you're grieving over something, you know, either like one of your parents died or something and, or you, you're grieving a relationship Mm -hmm. and you're at the bottom of the sine wave and it's going to be like that for a few months. You're drinking or you're weed smoking. It's an excess if used to suppress your emotions or if you're suppressing your emotions in another way, then you're not going to go back up mm-hmm. because you're not, you're not allowing yourself to process those emotions. So I think for me, not understanding that sine wave and just kind of being like, well, this is how I am. So I'm going to keep doing it. And in a way I'd accepted that, you know, my brain was, I'd almost like given up, given up yeah. on, on my happiness in a way. Right. Right. You sort of learn to like live with it. You learn that, yeah. You, you just kind of settle for it. I totally agree. I definitely just like, fuck it. Like, I'll take, I'll take the small wins. I'll take the, the, yeah. short, the short jumps and, up. I'll, I'll, and in I'll, a way, in the moment, you're like, you know, this is good enough. Yeah, like, you yeah. go through short spurts. Yeah, people go on benders and, like, they're not productive at all. But, like, there's a reason humans love drugs and alcohol. And it's because it, in, in a lot of ways and a lot of times it makes you feel good. But it's the long-term effects of from using that as a coping mechanism that completely destroys your ability to cope healthily at all or face those things or be able to discuss it maturely or productively in any way, shape, or form. Right, because if you're suppressing your emotions, especially with the help of substances, you're not going to be able to put a name to what you're feeling except confusion, and there's not much you can do with that, you know? Mm -hmm. So... If you if you keep suppressing all of that, I mean, you're gonna have you're gonna have a mental breakdown eventually, or some kind of some level of breaking point. Yeah, and w- what it really all comes down to is when you're an individual struggling with mental health. W- what a lot of people don't take the time to do is like being incredibly self-aware about really your whole system and and being conscious of the way that might affect you on a day-to-day basis. And I was wondering. What does self-acceptance mean to you? What does self-awareness mean to you? Yeah, 
you know, in terms of self-awareness and understanding your own emotions and introspection. I try my best, but what I've kind of realized is you can't, you're never going to get fully there. There are going to be times where you have a lot of work stacking up or you just kind of, you know, go back to your old ways or whatever. And that's okay too. Being healthy isn't about being perfect, you know, but I think there are ways that you can, you can definitely make your self-acceptance better and your self-awareness better. And I'm going to spit out a Carl Jung quote to be whole. You have to incorporate the devil and the monkey within you. And what he's talking about is you have to admit that you're fucked up. And that's just how it is. You know, as a human, that is an inevitable outcome. You're going to be doing bad things. You're going to hurt people. You're going to fail. You're going to feel despair. You're going to feel alone. And, you know, and you're going to feel all the positive things too. But I think introspection starts with not being arrogant and, and also being compassionate to yourself, understanding that you're, you're going to be negative, whether that means feeling negative emotions or doing negative things. You're going to be a negative force in this world in some way. And that's mm-hmm. okay to a degree. You just have to kind of find the way to flip that on its head. And negative self-talk is something that takes over from the sub- subconscious. One bad thing happens and you start beating yourself up for it or whatever happens. And, and it's all without control. And I know personally finding the ability to like wrestle that switch back from my brain and try and rationalize whatever, whatever I'm thinking, whatever's going on. And, and sort of take a step back and look at it more objectively because something I've had to consider a lot with facing my anxiety and my stress and particularly my panic disorder is how do I take the reins from the irrational side of my brain? And I think something you talk about is, oh, you're, you're not going to feel this way forever. And, but like when your irrational brain is thinking, it's like running on autopilot and it's running on overdrive. And, and you really got to fight and you got to have that level of self-awareness sort of understanding outside the moment that these things are going to happen. And it's at the end of the day, I think it's something you, you said off mic. Like emotions are natural, but feelings are, are not permanent. And it's hard to register that in the moment. No, it really is. And for me, panic, I wouldn't say I have like full-on panic attacks, but I do get like this tightness in my chest. And I'll be like, okay, how do I get rid of this? And I'll go like stretch out go for a walk it's still there i'll be like okay maybe i need to maybe i'm not eating enough and like i'll I'll eat a little more make sure i'm drinking water like and and then i realize you know what what can you do except accept it right and that that might not sound very helpful but no i do know that i I think that's just that's just a part of like learning to live with it is is just registering it in the moment and Yes, I'm not always able to like snap myself out of a panic attack, but as long as you're able to, in some aspect, grab hold of that rational part of your brain and really start to rationalize the situation that you're in, that's like all you really can do to a certain extent. Right, Yeah. exactly, and kind of almost treat yourself like a little kid and like tell yourself in your head that it's going to be okay and kind of figure out your reasons and your evidence why it is going to be okay. And lo and behold, like an hour or two later, you feel okay. And, or maybe not, you do eventually. But yeah, and I think it's, it's a weird situation because it's almost like a part of your brain that you are aware of through like physical manifestations of an anxiety attack, but not, you have zero control over it. And I mean, your brain is just designed like that, you know? And mm-hmm. I think <laughs> literally it's a, mammalian or reptilian part of your brain you know it's it's beyond your consciousness and i think that recognizing that is really really important there's a reason why for part of my own mental health understanding biology is so crucial in understanding psychology because i think that part of part of the negative part of a panic attack or anxiety or any negative emotion is the guilt you feel later or self kind of self-shame you feel later Mm -hmm. but i think that once you remove those secondary emotions that you have about your instinctive natural responses then that removes a lot of excess negativity from your life just yeah i think in a way you can almost disidentify and i and i want to say that lightly because like that sounds like disassociating but i mean that in a sense that you can under you can have a panic attack and also understand that that panic attack is not you as a person and that as a consciousness and that's 
part of your unconscious brain. And maybe you've been feeding into it, but I mean, you can't control it. It's not you, and that's okay. Right. It's just it's just part of being a human. And I mean, yeah, that's honestly one of the toughest parts. I, when you're being so irrational, and there, there are times I've had a panic attack in front of a friend, and they're just like, what the fuck are you even talking about right now? Like, what you're worrying about right now, there's no reason to worry about it. And there's, there's no way to, it's not their fault, but that doesn't necessarily, like, yeah, you can, you can think that, but without the ability to really do the work on yourself and have better self-dialogues and really, if you don't know yourself, hearing that from a friend is just going to make you feel like kind of a, just kind of a spaz. And when that happens, it can be easy to try and like shut yourself down, especially after a panic attack or after, after just such a negative time, it can be really easy to shut yourself down, which is why so many people like a stereotype of depression is just when you can't get out of bed. We talked about taking easy way outs, but sometimes it's so terrifying to try and even go out and have to engage with both the real world and this battle that you're dealing with inside your head. And the tough part is finding productive ways to do that. And how do you take a day off productively? Because just sitting there and watching Netflix the entire day, yeah, it might feel good in the moment, but it doesn't necessarily get you anywhere better. And I mean, I'm culprit number one of that. And just sit yeah, for, me for too, me yeah. too. In high school, I could play video games for 12 hours straight or longer. It's tough. But I think being able to not be distracted, I think that's the key for me at least. Because once you set your phone down, once you turn off your computer, your Xbox or whatever, then all you have for your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the space you need to be in to do that self-understanding, that introspection. You need to be with you and your thoughts. Right, right. You got to create that space. You got to choose to take that pain because especially like when I was very mentally unwell, it was painful to just be alone with my mm-hmm. thoughts. Like that was, that was pain, you know? So yeah, I was talking to my buddy about three weeks ago and he, he was sort of talking about how in high school, when we were hanging out with our friends, particularly our guys, I would always be either the first one to like spend the night or like the last one to take off if we weren't. And I think it was just such a, like, I'm definitely a people person. I I enjoy the company of others. And I think for the longest time, I used that as a crutch in the same way I would use a television show or something to avoid having to deal with just my own thoughts alone. Because I used to just rag on myself all day long and it was not productive at all. And I mean, I used my most, like my relationship as a crutch all the time. And that just completely annihilated my ability to face the things inside my head alone. And over the last month, learning to really face these things alone and finding those moments alone. Yeah, I talk also about finding healthy spaces in your family and friends, but as I've said it before, I'll say it again, the true healing is going to be found internally. And it's what you got to seek out in yourself. Yeah, it's going to be tough. You you need a little bit of willpower to push through, especially the first couple days, but kind of the way you talked about your therapist, like you start to enjoy it relaxing on your own in, in a more productive yeah. headspace. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels good to a certain degree. It's like, I kind of think about therapy as like rolling out your muscles or stretching your muscles after working out. It hurts, but it hurts so good, you know? And and I think that if you can, once you really find that self-acceptance and that self-love, there was definitely a moment in my life where something kind of switched in my brain. And I, I have no idea why it was in the moment it was in specifically, but there is definitely a moment in my life where my brain kind of just said that it was okay with me and everything I was doing and that I would just do my best to be a good person. And it was like a moment of self-acceptance. And I mean, nothing was perfect after that. Nothing's perfect, but it was things got a million times easier, you know, rooting out those negative emotions. Not rooting them out as in they're bad because You know, they exist for a reason, but covering them and being able to do that, you can only do that when you're, when you have that self-acceptance, that level of self-love. Yeah. It's tough to like find the right words to really put to it because it's so complex, but so simple at the same time. Like having already gone, gone through the thick of it, it's easier to look back and be like, oh, like this is what you do. It's, it seems so like second nature at this point. 
don't get me wrong, the probably the hardest part of my entire struggle with mental health was taking those first strides, even worse than like any any part of the depression or anxiety, taking those first strides in trying to understand myself and through that sucks. <laughs> Dude, it's so hard. And part of the difficulty I feel like is, you know, what is introspection? In a way, it's such a abstract, nebulous concept. Like self-love, how can you just decide to, to love yourself, you know? And I think that's part of the difficulty with mental health is it's not something you can put like a numerical value on or anything like that. But yeah, I think that... I, I think just, I think what you're saying with regard to like putting a number on it, I think that's that's one of the issues you probably faced when you went in for your initial testing. I remember being handed a sheet of paper and it's like, tell me how this feels on a scale of one to 10. It's like, not the f- fucking same it will in an hour. Yeah, <laughs> like I can't, yeah, exactly. I can't give you that. Exactly. Uh, that's always frustrating in itself. And But I, I also think socially, understanding it's not quite as black and white as, as we like to think it is. It's easy to look at a broken bone and be like, oh, that shit snapped in half. But when it's when it's less concrete, naturally, we don't do as good of a job of really understanding the complexities of it. And I think a lot of people think of like, oh, you're depressed, like you're sad all the time. Or you're not depressed, you're not sad all the time. I think that's probably an over, like an, an overgeneralization and oversimplification. But at the same time, in order to change the way we look or talk about any of these things, there there has to be a more broad-reaching understanding of how these things really manifest in such different degrees on such different days with every single different person. Right, and I think that's part of why it, it takes so long at first to get that running start because I feel like introspection is about watching yourself over time and observing what different triggers make you feel different things or for me it was like how why am I unable to keep like a relationship with you know with a woman and that was something that (laughs) I just failed at over and over but every time I I took notes and luckily I started journaling pretty early so that gave me a big advantage and just being able to watch yourself over time I think is really important because it is it is a slow process, but for me, another big turning point was like there was definitely a moment that I was going to give you know being like mentally healthy my all. Like, I I wanted it so bad, and I think that's that's a good moment. That was definitely an important moment for me because then I just kept at this wave of introspection and self acceptance and. Again, it's weird to say because those are such abstract things, but there's just some very distinct change in my thought processes. And it's almost like your brain is a big ship and your consciousness is like the rudder on the big ship. Over time, you can kind of direct the ship, you know, the rest of your brain, but it's very Mm -hmm. slow and you have to be very gentle and you have to be very persistent. Yeah, well... I like that metaphor. The starting point. Finding that moment where you're like, this is something I care about now. You already spoke to it. We, we both already spoke to it. But going from the point where you're sort of living in contentment to wanting to change the way you are, it's it changes everything. There's this book I've been reading called Atomic Habits. And something it talks about a lot is if, if you want to change your negative habits the key to that is changing your identity. And I think the moment I picked up the podcast, right, the moment I picked up just all in all wanting to be a more introspective, more self-caring person and, and wanting to give give a shit about mental health overall more and be more conscious of my alcohol consumption and really all aspects of college life that have upset me thus far or, or like in my interpersonal relationships, just all aspects and telling myself that in order to be this person, start this show, I had to find a way to be more conscious of that and really dig in and make it a like holistic part of my life. It changed everything from like zero to 100 overnight. It took about 
two or three days before from like the day that I went on my break from drinking to starting this podcast. That's all it took. And I think that identity shift of, of wanting to take that time and open up the floor for conversations like these, it changed everything in my life. And I'm certainly a person who's much more comfortable being alone now. Like I'm very honestly like happy uh, just alone with my thoughts now. And there's, there's certainly a pride you take away from knowing what you've overcome and knowing you're on a better route. And I mean, obviously, it can't just say that after saying not everything's so black and white, but knowing you've at least taken the right steps in the right direction and having some reassurance of that is probably the best I've felt in four or five years. Yeah, and you know, it's a good point to be at because, I mean, your your mental health fluctuates. So, like, I've been at, I've had moments where I've felt completely whole again and then, you know, something else happens or, mm-hmm. you know, there's just always more because you're a person. Right. And then I go, I kind of go back down, but then I go back up and then I go back down and every time it, it feels more smooth and it mm-hmm. turns into more like healthy negative emotions instead of mental despair, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Um, so the longer you keep at it, the smoother you get at it. And it's the way you're describing it, it's like a skill the skill you develop and you gain confidence in just kind of like mastering any sport Mm -hmm. you get better at it and it gets easier yeah totally it really is an ever-changing matter and but the whole point is not to make yourself a hundred percent better necessarily I mean that's the end game but that's not something you can just do in a year and I mean honestly a lot of people deal with mental health their entire life dude and I've I've gotten caught in the trap of trying to do too much that's a very, 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 very easy trap to get caught into. Where, so I, I had my extreme low at college, right? So I come back and I'm sitting at that low and I go to psychiatry, I get better. And then I'm like, wow, I did it. I've cured myself. This is it. And then I start to feel myself going back down again, you know, a few months later. And, and I'm like, oh no. And I'm kind of in, in denial. I'm kind of like right. fearful, you know, I'm, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm scared of that. And then when I finally do hit that low, I'm I'm trying to do too much. I'm like, okay, wait, do I need to go? Maybe I could go for a walk again, and that'll make me feel better. And then I realize the whole point of all of this is to be okay with not feeling good, you know. Right, that's, right, and learning how to how to overcome those moments when they rise back up. And ride, the, ride that sine wave, you know. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Knowing that just because it's going down right now, that means it eventually has to come back up. And honestly, just as I was saying, the whole point isn't necessarily to get 100% better, but it's to make things easier on yourself and to make it easier to pull yourself out of those funks or at least acknowledge and respond to them in productive, healthy manners. Right. And from a philosophical perspective, you know, you and me, if we're lucky, we'll be here for like, what, 50 more years. Do you want to spend that time enjoying your time? Mm Mm-hmm at least enjoying part of it, you know, or do you not want to? And when I put it that way, to myself at least, that was kind of like a moment of clarity. Yeah, at a certain point, you go on with it for so long that you don't really have an option. Right, Are you or you even grow up with it. Right, right. This is just how life is. Yeah, as you, as a wise man once said, we're all just monkeys on a rock, just learning to deal with all our shit. (laughs) Literally, we are literally just monkeys on a rock, bro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's facing their own thing. But I, I think the biggest matter is just learning how to deal with it personally. And I mean, obviously, support systems make everything so much easier, but it can be really easy to trick yourself you're doing a lot better when surrounded by a lot of supportive peers. The true test of strength and will are in those low moments. In, in those moments, you find a way from the crowd. In those moments, right. you are feeling anxious or sad or depressed, and, and you feel those old things sort of coming back. And however long it takes to pull yourself out of them, the feeling you get, as, as you said, when the wave starts coming back up, it's like seeing the sunrise after a really long, shitty night, like a break in the storm. And it's the most incredible sense of relief and self-assurance that right that, that comes that knowledge that knowledge that you're not 
going to feel that way forever. And, you know, from a, from a rational perspective, I think that part of the issue is that our society does not feed well into to our mental health. Like, statistically, I think I read 50% of American adults get diagnosed under DSM-5, which is, like, astronomically high. And those are the people who are getting diagnosed. I mean, think about all those undiagnosed people. And I think that speaks more to, like, the failures of our society and the way we live inside our society is kind of, you know, and our society is great in a lot of ways at least for you and me, like we don't have to murder people for our own survival. We don't have to, we don't have to fight for food. We don't have to do things like that. And there are people who, who do have to, but my point is that I still believe that there is something about our society that has some sort of negative impact on people's mental health. My point is that bad mental health is so widespread across specifically this country. And when you, when you look at a lot of European countries or poorer nations, you know, they don't have as much money as the American GDP of however many trillion, you know, people still find a way to be happy and people are happier on average. And I think there's definitely some failings within our own country. There's, there's certainly a decent amount built up around the, around the idea of success and what it means to hold it together and be a productive American right. That comes with a lot of stigma in itself, and I mean, we could talk for hours on that, but I, th- I think it is really just the perfectionist ideals that we talked about in seeing in our own schools that cause a lot of those problems, and how, how shameful it almost feels to start to find that voice and start to come out and talk about your mental health and realize it, thinking that everybody else is able to just get through life without having to take antidepressants or whatever it may be. And, I mean, we could make a whole other episode on, on how America itself causes. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Just, yeah. like, whether it be generational trauma or, like, everybody has their own experience coming up in different ways, but everybody has something going on, even in, like, perfect homes that cause issues down the line. And you, you never know what it's going to yeah. be. And, I mean, you never know when, when it's going to flare up. With all that said, I think we've touched on like a great broad array of what it means to really find yourself in your struggle with mental health and how self-acceptance and self-worth are kind of like the binding ingredients of it all and focusing on your number one, on you. I just wanted to give you the opportunity to provide some closing thoughts and reiterate some of your favorite points and just what speaks the most to you from your entire experience put together. Yeah, I mean, I think finding that those spaces where you can be your genuine self and learning to be your genuine self in as many spaces as possible, I think that's absolutely crucial. Kind of connected to that, I think that it's important because for me, I got caught up in trying to be like positive all the time as a counter to my mental health. But I think it's important to remember that mental health is about balance. You know, It's not about being positive all the time. It's about finding a good balance in your life and in a lot of aspects, balance in a lot of aspects. But I think the most important thing to remember is that you're just a monkey on a rock and that (laughs) no matter how complex, how smart we like to think we are, I think it's always good to take a moment to humble yourself and also find that self-compassion that you are just an animal no matter how smart we are, no matter the fact that we can send robots to other planets, people still struggle to be happy. And that's part of being a human. You know, we have, we're kind of cursed because we have this ability to experience stuff so vividly and think so clearly, but also it's almost like our brains are too much for us sometimes. And we can't accept those unconscious like a panic attack is a good example that's part of being an animal is you have flight or fight responses and i think it's hard for our logical brains to accept that about us as a whole and that's why i really like the monkey on a rock thing because it's true Mm -hmm. you know you're just a monkey on a rock yeah that's okay you gotta learn to live with being the animal you are i like that right well david it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on 
thank you so much. I think there's a lot of incredible knowledge that you, you've shared and incredible experience that you've gained. You know, I've fucked up a lot. And <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we all? I'm, yeah. I'm definitely not perfect, but thank you. Thank you for the compliment. I really yeah. appreciate it because I've put a lot of work into this. It's very endearing to see. I think I think a lot of people can gain a lot of hope from hearing your story and seeing your positive outlook on maybe not constant positivity, but certainly positive outlook on your personal state of being. So thank you so much. Obviously keep in touch and I hope you have a great rest of your night. Thank you so much, Connor. Of course. As David and I both stated, you have to change your mindset in order to start growing. And in return, that process will change you. I'm in many ways the same person I was before the show started. I'm just more actively engaging with some more authentic emotions and goals. I'm not claiming to have gone under some incredible shift of identity and not once have I viewed myself as someone who's got it all figured out. I'm just a guy who was issued a wake-up call and decided it was time to make the best of a less-than-great situation. Due to this, the changes I've made have been strictly for the better, and I'm much happier today than I was several months ago. What I really appreciate about David's message is recognizing that, as a human, I'm going to mess up, and I totally have even within the last couple of months. But even though I might have let myself down a little bit, I was able to register that wasn't a productive headspace and instead focus on the positives of everything that happened and furthermore, looking at the positives of my own reaction to alcohol and having a less self-pressured experience fueled by anxiety was a really, really good feeling. I mean, small wins, (laughs) they can go a long way. The key for myself and all of us is understanding that we all slip up sometimes. You rarely can control the events that occur to you, but you can control your reaction. Realizing and working on that has been essential for me. Whether it be shifting the ways I cope with my past experiences or just waking up with some anxiety from the night before. Improving my reaction has improved my outlook and my overall mental state. I really hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed today's interview. Spring break coming up. I'm sure to have a lot more time for reflection and fun. So, Stay tuned for some more episodes and blog posts, which I know have also been lacking. Never be afraid to anonymously share your story and reach out anytime via Instagram. Thank you so much for tuning in. I will see you next time. And as always, I can't wait to keep growing with you. (laughs) 